0: Well, we're continuing our series in this portion of scripture in the book of Psalms, and it brings us tonight to this short psalm, Psalm 70, a psalm indeed of David, and a psalm that has some of the themes that we're familiar with of late, but indeed whenever we come to the book of Psalms, we we find there before us that David is surrounded by enemies, He has difficulties, how often that that is the case whenever the Holy Spirit moves him to write what we have. And that's contained here in this manual of worship for the Christian church, the book of Psalms. And we see that they're seeking his life in verse two. They are desiring his hurt in verse two. And we can't think that he's just afflicted here by paranoia, He's just seeing trouble everywhere and fear on every side, but that it is real. There really are people who are seeking his life and desiring his hurt. You don't have to look long into the story of David, his biography, to realize that that was quite a common experience. There were people after him, people from other nations, people within his own nation, troubles and tribulations that happened to him within his own family, and uh, from other tribes and groups within Israel. And he finds that they're full of arrogance. That's what that aha, aha is. doesn't perhaps convey in English exactly what's going on there, but it is a sign of contempt. It's the sort of triumphant kind of expression of those who think you're down and out, and they're soon going to be trampling on you, that they got the better of you, and they're telling you, that that's it, they're going to lord it over you, break your, your will and your resolve, leave you defeated. So it is a very arrogant kind of expression, and David feels it. He feels the hurt that's intended in it, and this he expresses here. And he prays, doesn't he, there to see his opponents unsettled. But also within this psalm, which just sort of brings together so much in just a a handful of verses. There in verse 4, he prays that those who seek him, who seek the Lord, you don't belong amongst those who devise schemes to hurt David. They will rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Those who love your salvation, well, let them say continually let God be magnified. Let him be glorified. Yet yeah, people entertain very high thoughts of him. And that's what they're singing. That's what they're saying. That's what continually is the, the offering of praise that they bring. But then he finishes with verse five, doesn't he? Which is actually where we're going to begin in a minute. With a reflection upon himself. And this is David, isn't it? So much of his time is spent very acutely aware of his own inner need his own emptiness left if you were to his own devices an emptiness that is there interestingly this psalm is uh, paralleled really by what we read in psalm 40 verses 13 to 17 if at your leisure sometime you care to look over that you will see that uh, very very similar That uh, there in psalm 40 in a bigger setting with other themes of praise and indeed anticipations of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. So there at the end of it is basically Psalm 70. Psalm 70 is a kind of shorter version uh, of that. And you can see, therefore, that the Holy Spirit, and we must credit God with this, the Holy Spirit, has seen fit to have this repeat. Psalm 14 is virtually repeated, quite word for word, in Psalm 53. But the Holy Spirit sees fit that certain lessons and certain experiences of this choice saint should be there before us more than once. So I said we're starting with verse five, starting at the end. And my first heading is self-reflection, self-reflection. This is what we find David doing here. But I am poor and needy, make haste to me, O God. You are my help, my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. And that is expressed again in Psalm 40, as mentioned, verses 16 and 17, verse 17 particularly, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help, my deliverer, do not delay, O my God. That same theme, that same thought and that urgency with which he prays. There is self-reflection there, isn't there? That is his estimate of himself. A great king, a man of considerable spiritual experience and accomplishment. And yet he pauses and looks at himself and declares of himself, I'm poor and needy. He might have armies at his disposal, servants and a retinue. He might have frequent communication with God. God showing him the future for him and his family and that from him, from his seed should come the very Messiah that the people of that day were eagerly awaiting for. And Yet he can serve himself poor and needy. People fill in their application forms or whatever else and uh, you're meant to put your strengths and your weaknesses and People often think, well, am I going to put my weaknesses there? Well, David would have plenty to say. I'm sure advisor would say, no, don't put all that down on, on there. <laughs> I won't employ you with that. But he would say, I'm sure I insist, no, that's me. I, I am poor and needy, poor in spirit and needy. I'm needing help. I'm needing the help of God. I need his help. And I need his deliverance, whatever I already have received from him. Whatever benefits I have been given by him, whatever knowledge I have of him, whatever wisdom that I've acquired in walking with him, I am very much poor and I am needy. And so there are times when perhaps we too, not all the time, but sometimes, just pause and look at who we actually are and look at ourselves very honestly. And realize there that we are poor and needy, that all the saints at their best are still poor and needy. Very often we fail to actually do that. We don't want to do it. We fear what we will find if we do do it. We think we'll see enough evidence there to condemn us, that it won't be enough to show that we're true Christians and we shy away. And rather than with God's help, looking and examining ourselves and undergoing a little self-reflection, we shy away from it and fear too much the conclusion that we might reach. And so many of us fighting battles within. Sometimes we're barely aware of the battles that are going on in there, but they're going on in there. And it accounts for the fact that we may lack assurance. That we may lack even that insight as to what is going on within our soul, and we we can be strangers to ourselves. We wonder, well, why did I feel that? Why did I say that? What what was happening there in me that I I felt that that I felt that fear that that something happened. I felt angry at that point. What was happening? And we are wise to pause and to come before God and to ask for some insight and to do it with a consciousness that it might be difficult what we're going to find, that it might expose some poverty, some need within. Because sin indwells us all. We read Romans chapter 7, that portion, on into chapter 8 a moment ago. Sin indwells us all, and Paul is at great lengths to say that, isn't he? That what we read in Romans 7, as we read on from verse 14, and we read it again into verse 20. He is looking at who he is in his own native resources. He's contrasting the law, which upholds such standards of goodness, righteousness, and he has exempted the law from any uh, fault, as it were, in uncovering his sin. Oh, he says the law is good, and all it did was just show me how wretchedly sinful that I am. But sin means that we cannot fulfill the law. Law of our mind as Christians. You saw the conflict there in Paul in Romans 7. Well, it actually approves the law of God. It delights in it. It loves it. There's a response there. But if you just then looked at what we have within ourselves, to be able to rise to the challenge of what we should be, well, it's defeat It's sadness and it's being dragged down. It's trying to practice good things, but ending up not practicing those things, saying the same wrong things, feeling the same wrong things. And so it would stay. And the crucial difference is actually the spirit of God. And uh, as we read uh, in that uh, passage, as we come out of Romans chapter 7, where Paul does a deliberate bit of self-reflection there. He's actually exonerating the law. actually shows that the law is good. It's my simple heart that isn't, and that's that's where there's a failure to obey. But that's not the last word, and that's how he finishes, isn't he? Chapter seven, as he prepares us for chapter eight, that he's thanking God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to deliver me from this, this body of death, from this sinful mind that heart that inhabits me? Well, he thanks God. Because through our Lord Jesus Christ, He has the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God works to actually help us now to begin to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It helps us to become obedient. It helps us to overcome the temptations to change some of the things we were thinking about this morning. But it's good that we remember, as Paul does here, in a way, he kind of steps back as it were, factors out the help of the Holy Spirit to just review just how needy as a Christian that he was and how many contrary things happened in his apostolic heart and therefore to be able to show the importance of the help of God his deliverance, which comes there by the grace of the Holy Spirit poured out into us. But we are wise to understand That, yes, that's us, that that's happening, that that battle, that that struggle, that we don't live in a kind of superficial, glib way, just excusing ourselves or just not even interested in finding out who we are as flesh and blood and being able to see that and then recognize it, that we can then ask God for the help of the Holy Spirit to come out of that. Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14. There's tenderness, you see, in this. That is not as if there's just that analysis and it just sucks us into an abyss and leaves us there utterly depressed. No. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows us. And he helps us to know ourselves. And whatever we make by way of discovery, that He is there to bring help, to remind us of the victory of Christ, that we thank God for our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we then are able to avail ourselves of the help of the Holy Spirit to change, that actually that law of sin and death warring in our members begins to become less and less, and is more and more the law of our mind. God is at work and the new nature is imprinted that comes more and more to the fore. But we wouldn't know unless we looked. And we wouldn't know about the battle unless we stopped to inquire. And when we find ourselves there, coming out with things, we think, what was that I said? Where did that come from? What's that I'm feeling? What's this negative impulse that's there? To stop to reflect and to realize, yes, we're poor and needy. This is some expression there of what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. And we bring it to the Lord in prayer and we open ourselves to his scrutiny. But we do it in the light of his love and mercy. As a father pitting his children, so the Lord pities us and he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He's there to help and he gives us the Holy Spirit to take away actually the fear of condemnation and the feeling of condemnation and to actually not only take away the negative feeling, but to give us actual power to now fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. We don't do this all of the time. We're not always to be Romans seven people, just scrutinizing there what's happening within, and oh, seeing just how poor and needy we are. But it's there somewhere, and it's here, and it's in Psalm 40, and it's in other places. Do we meant to follow it? And we're meant to learn from it, not be unbalanced as Christians, and we topple into that all the time, but not be unbalanced as Christians, that we're superficial, living superficially in a kind of glow of almost triumphalism that won't actually stand up when a trial comes. Often we don't do this little bit of self-reflection because we're in good health, actually. And we can be sailing along and everything's actually going pretty okay. And that lulls us, if you like, into a false sense of security. And we can reliably inform you the Lord will soon throw the proverbial spanner in the works. There'll be something that will happen and the wheels come off and we're beginning to have to look and ask ourselves some things. A little bit like Jonah Bear with his gourd suddenly withered. There he is, fuming with anger. And God speaks to him, begins to unlock his heart and show him this irrationality that he's so wound up about this when he should have been feeling much more strongly about the Lord's compassion for Nineveh and been actually very happy about that, except that he wasn't. There was something wrong and the prophet needed God's scrutiny and interrogation, often putting it in those terms. Yeah, sometimes we are just moving along happily. The, The gourd is growing and shading us from the heat of the sun. Some happy providences have come. Well, we thank God for all happy providences, but we must never be lulled into a false sense of security, that we don't stop and look and ask ourselves some questions. Oh, yes, we can be busy. And how often, I always I'm very repetitive in this, but we, we can be so busy as Christians, busy about Christian work, that we fail actually to really ask ourselves the searching questions that the scriptures invite us to ask and which David asked. He found his weakness, yes. He found that there was great need, that there was all that Paul found when he looked at himself and just sort of dissected himself in Romans 7 and shows us there with brutal honesty the battle that's going on within. How at times there we lack peace, lack assurance. Should ask ourselves more often, well, why? Why do I lack peace? Why why is there not more joy in my soul? What what am I missing here? And seeing perhaps the battle that's happening within. Perhaps we too self-reliant. Relying upon our own resources. Learning, but not growing. Not applying the things which we have here in the Bible. So there is David, caught up in a bit of self-reflection. I've already anticipated my second heading, Urgent Prayer. Urgent Prayer. This isn't something there just to sort of gravitate downwards. It's not a kind of whirlpool. We just get sucked in and go down with it. I think at times people are too quick to get out of Romans 7. They're too eager to sort of land upon Romans 8 and with a sigh of relief, leave behind this struggle that Paul talks about there. But it's there for the good reason that that's the reality of the Christian life. But then... From that, just as with David here, urgent prayer is to be made. We catch it, don't we? There in verse 1, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. Paralleled in Psalm 40. And again there, make haste to me, O God, in verse 5. His help. He confesses God to be his help and his deliverer, but he needs that help and he needs that deliverance he's poor and needy and so it sets him about urgent prayer because that's what it should do with spiritually minded people and we find within those things which david found within his own heart my what sir uh, what knowledge and what experiences he had of god's working still so this is what he could find in his heart and he prays he makes it a matter of urgent prayer there's nothing kind of casual, uh, as matter of fact about it, just sort of saying it and filling the time with it. He feels this, doesn't he? Because he's seen the need, but he knows that God can meet that need. He knows that God actually is able to to give him the help of the Holy Spirit, to teach him and instruct him, to give him valuable lessons that, that we're leaving behind that and growing a little more and, Gathering in spiritual riches a little more into the soul, proofing it, garrisoning, guarding it against the troubles that come. He's not praying because he doesn't think God will answer. He's praying because he knows God will answer. The uncovering of that spiritual dearth, a famine within the soul and emptiness sends us to God in prayer. And my dear friends, we won't be disappointed if we do. Indeed, i will help us pray for others, because you can be sure of this, if that's what you and I are feeling, that's what they're feeling too. And they may not have even worked out that that's what they're feeling, but they are. And you can pray for them with compassion and with earnestness. And so often that urgent prayer is made because, because of the enemies that surround us, the troubles, the trials, the difficulties. They uncover the need like nothing else. We realize how fearful we are. We realize how willing to be disobedient we are. How quick we are to try to rewrite scripture, to kind of make what we want to do fit in and make life comfortable for ourselves rather than a little bit inconvenient and a little bit painful. And so we are needing to see God work in us We're opposed when the difficulty is there. Well, they may not be literally seeking our life in one sense. But I tell you what, the foes, the gospel and our nation are strong. And they're there and they're vociferous. And if they could, they'd keep us shut in this building here, not anywhere out there, not in the local schools. They'd have us just to pass time here, give these thoughts to each other and do nothing about it certainly not take it out there and speak it in the public square. No, they'd have us silence, they'd have us cancelled, they'd have us well and truly uh, away and out of the public gaze. And that's the life that we're in, and the battle that we're in. And that can make us quite afraid or depressed or discouraged, disappointed. And so we find that there is such a quick reaction in us that's faced with opposition and difficulty, and people who really don't wish the gospel well, really do wish it harm, So we can be very discouraged, find great weakness and great need within, then it must be the time to pray. Come to God with great urgency to deliver us from this. It's not as if we're being asked to be suddenly sort of lifted out of the circumstance somehow that uh the whole culture is just going to change overnight like that. We pray for revival. That would do something like that if that were to happen. But so uh, we've lived long enough now, haven't we? We've not seen that. So we can't promise ourselves that as we said this morning. But he can help us to cope with it and to bear it and even to prosper spiritually in it. And so David, facing opposition, facing difficulty, knowing that here he needs God to work deeper within him to give him conviction and courage and strength. And so he goes to the one he knows can help with that. If he didn't pray anymore, if we didn't pray and didn't ask God for help, then burnout and depression and giving up would be probably where we'd end up. And many do. That's a sadness. Many do. Or if they've not shown it yet, somewhere in here they've given up. Somewhere inside they're they're defeated. The battle's lost Uh, Somehow they're going through the motions, but that's all they're doing, just going through the motions. They've already surrendered somewhere within the depths of their soul, and that is very sad. So we pray, and in praying, well, who knows how God will answer such prayers. He said that what is prayed here will discomfort those who oppose, that if God's kingdom is going to come and his will is going to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, there's going to be trouble for some. There's going to be quite a lot of friction and heat, a lot of disappointment and dismay. And God will trouble people. He will trouble people. I think when you look out, a lot of people are troubled. They're not happy people because somewhere God is speaking to their consciences. Somewhere he's reminding them of his existence and they're fighting back and doing all they can, but they're just doing injury upon injury to their soul. They're not happy people. Sometimes I think God gives windows of opportunity to reflect. Maybe in the United States, when the Supreme Court uh, overturned as a constitutional right, the right to abortion. And so what was established by the Roe v. Wade case, and uh, then liberal judges had said, yes, so it is a right that you have, that that right to that, being able to access abortion. And the Supreme Court. Justices said, no, we cannot find that in the Constitution. That right is not there. It's for individual states to uh, come to their own conclusions on that and for the people to decide that. It's not for the federal government to decide it. So they struck down Roe v. Wade. Well, if you've been following the news and still following the news, the outcry was immense, huge, huge. Shouts and howls and all kinds of extreme actions as women and men protested the decision. Clinics that are are there established to try to persuade pregnant mothers to go through with their pregnancy and offering help and counsel to them where they've been firebombed and threats have been delivered. Huge, immense, the, the response. And Joe Biden, the president of America there. At least some better days, uh, that uh, he himself has spoken out against the Supreme Court, which is quite a quite a thing to do. And quite an up an overturning of the Constitution of America, for the president to actually speak against the Supreme Court, and to threaten it, and to uh, promise we're going to overturn all of this. So the hue and the cry. Oh, we wonder. Because it's just uncovered, hasn't it, there, the howling rage of sin that this, reserve this, our hedonistic lifestyle, our promiscuity, this, this which was the, the kind of backstop, the guarantee, this freedom to, what well, has be sexually promiscuous. We must have it. The anger and the fear and everything that's uncovered. It was a moment, wasn't it, really, to stop and think, to offer these people, to ask themselves, what's happening with us? Why is the killing of an unborn child producing this reaction in us, rather than one thinking, that's true. This is a wrong thing that we're doing. How come that we've allowed it for so long? And well, we wait to see, don't we, what the result there will be. But urgent prayer for ourselves, urgent prayer for this culture, that God would come. And it might mean the unsettling of people, it might mean you see the howls of rage and the protests and all the shouting and the hullabaloo. But all it shows us is their sinful heart. No spirit of God helping them there. No other pushback from within of a new nature to kind of get them right side. But just pure irrationality, pure hatred, violence, and all that is ugly. So we pray. We pray for ourselves, but it may mean that the furniture gets moved around a bit in our culture and that people who are there are Forerunners and proponents of these things may find that their life is a little difficult and they're getting some interruptions in normal process from heaven. Finally, though, a prayer for spiritual joy. Uh, That's my third heading, a prayer for spiritual joy. We've seen this a few times of late. And in the Psalms, having dealt with some pretty heavy themes, having looked at some real enmity that David himself was facing, but then his thoughts turn. And isn't that the complexity of the spiritual life that we can be this, but then also that, that we can be Romans 7 one moment, but then we're telling ourselves and Romans 8 the next, rejoice because there's so much to rejoice in. And David's prayer is that those who seek not David's harm, but who stand with him and who love the God that David loves. Oh, that they would rejoice and be glad in you. That they wouldn't be depressed and discouraged and low and just live in a kind of permanent state of this, but that there'll be real gladness of heart that they'd have. That there'll be a brightness for them. That in their own soul, the cry, let God be magnified. The salvation of God that we have in Christ. So we're saying it continually, Lord's day by Lord's day, service by service. Why, indeed, in our own devotions, day by day, let God be magnified. Let him be larger and larger in our esteem. Let, let it be unbounded and unconfined, our joy in him. Let's see more and more of his majesty, not just us, but let it be seen everywhere. Let those who seek the hurt of the church, those who devise evil, those aha, aha sayers, well, let them say too God be magnified, let him be exalted there. Let him be loved and honored and obeyed and cherished. And so he prays that the church will rejoice, that we will be glad in him. Well, that's what we seek to do, isn't it? Sing our hymns of praise. Praise we have other themes as well in our hymns. It came in a little bit in some of the hymns we sang this evening. And uh, Poverty, our prayers and our weak and faint desires. Yes, that's, that's all part of it too. What a varied, what a diverse life that we have as Christians. But there we are, we're singing. And so we should, because that singing is actually a sign of confidence that we have in God. Let him be exalted. Let him be magnified. Not saying it there because, well, it's just something to cheer ourselves up with, but because it's true. Because he will be magnified, actually. One day the whole world will see him. Those who hated him will really be confounded. And we're singing now as a sign of confidence in him and everything that he has told us about himself. And we say, yes, we know him. And we think he's worth singing about. We think he's worth coming to and worshipping. That's what worship is, isn't it? It's a designation of worship. that somebody is worthy of our praises and our adoration, of our consecrating our time to him. That's also an encouragement to each other. That's what we're doing, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. We're exhorting each other in that, saying this is the God that I'm magnifying. You magnify him with me. And well, our singing may not uh, perhaps be that which would be a choir of the year or something there. I say that there rather kindly. I say it of myself, our creaky old voices at times there. But it's not that. It's not the kind of whether we will be choir of the year or something like that, but true, sincere, glad, upright hearts praising their God together, each other singing, worshipping. And then that's, we're saying, well, that man, that woman there, singing praises to God, and I'm singing praises to him as well. We have the windows open this evening, and out through the summer season and the uh, COVID times and the rest of it. So they hear out there, actually. They hear outside. People, again, the make of the singing there, whether they're just judging us there, as, uh, as mentioned there, whether we're the choir of the year, or I guess we're not. But it's saying something. It's saying that we think it's worth worth coming, worth singing, worth praising this God, that we're alive because we believe he's alive. There's a church here, a community of worshipping people, however small we might be. But we're here and we haven't gone away. And by God's grace, we're not going away either. And we sing, don't we, because actually we, we want to see so much more. We want God to have the glory, glory be to God the Father, Yes, we want Him to have the glory. We want people, not just ourselves we We want thousand tongues to see our great redeemers praise we We want him to be magnified with companies of people, droves of people, swarms of people, because really that's what they owe him, and that's what he deserves and While he does not receive that, something in us feels very unfinished and very unsettled that that glorious Christ whom we love, who loved us and washed us from each guilty stain, that we want him to be loved too. And so we sing that he should be honoured. We sing that people one day will see what they're missing. Yes, what they're missing. And come and join us, join another church, join a good evangelical church, wherever it is. And to be able to say continually, God be magnified. So weak people, but a great God. That's the title. I don't think I said it at the beginning, but that's the title. Weak people, but a great God. And there in this short psalm, about five verses, so much of the complexity, diversity of the Christian life. And there's a portion of it. Don't do all of that and only that. There are other parts too. That's the glory and the beauty of the whole counsel of God that eventually you'll cover it all. One bit at a time, a little here and a little there. Let's be encouraged and let us go on saying continually that God be magnified.